Well, we are back into our series on Let's Praxis, which is which we've been in from the beginning of the year, uh, really just digging in and diving into discipleship. What does discipleship mean, and how do we approach discipleship as a church? It's a, uh, an, an important word that really speaks to the journey that you and I go on whenever we make a vow of devotion to Christ. And so to kind of get us thinking along the right direction, we like a little participation here at City Life. Uh, th- think of a time or an example of somebody going above and beyond. So you raise your hand, I'll point to you. And When you think of the idea of going above and beyond, what do you think of? Somebody raise your hand. Going above and beyond. Say that, who said that? Garland Moore. Come on, that's her husband. Nice. All right. All right, which wife is next? Right? Come on, Claudia's like, ah, so good. All right, just so you know right now, guys, all the husbands that haven't raised your hand to now say your wife's name, you're in trouble, right? That was your cue, and now the train has left, and your back's going to be sore tomorrow from sleeping on the couch. Just saying, Jordan. Come on, right? When you have babies and the meal train going above and beyond. And they just keep coming, right? And there's a little bit of competition that's going on too, right? Because everybody wants to outdo the other person, and you're the benefactor of that. I know. No, those are good examples. Somebody else going above and beyond. Raise your hand. Doug? Say that again. Medal of Honor winners. Absolutely. Military, law enforcement, firefighters, people that win a a Medal of Honor for for just the the sacrifice they're willing to step into the moment to save someone else. Jamal, do you have your hand up? Okay, but it's all right. It's okay? Yeah, go ahead. We, you and Dale for buying me a life jacket. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Little inside story there, mission strip and working on a grinder and the blade came off. And yeah, I know, safety glasses, right? Saved your life. Saved your life. You'd have a patch. You'd look like a pirate if we, yeah, I know. I read Jamal, Yeah. Yeah, realtors. Helping you find the perfect home, right? Some realtors don't go above and beyond. Some do. Put in the extra effort. Come on, what's one more? Going above and beyond. Mother Teresa, yeah. People in history that we look at their example and the life that they're willing to live. And, and this idea of going above and beyond is important to us because that's what the Holy Spirit does for you and for me every day. Right? There, there's, there's, there's times maybe in our lives where we go above and beyond, but it's really the exception. Right? We, we don't have the capacity to live in that place. Most of our days are ordinary, and then for some few people, there's moments where they step into the extraordinary and they go above and beyond. But the Holy Spirit goes above and beyond for us every moment of every day. It's his normal. Romans 8, 26 to 28, we're going to peel back the layers tonight of just these few verses. Romans 8, 26 to 28, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. 
Verse 27, and the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's word, will, and here it comes. This, one of the, maybe next to John 3.16, this could be one of the most popular verses in the Bible. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Father, as we dig into this, this, this pathway of prayer that's such a central part of our pathways, this, 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 this journey of, of prayer, of conversation that we need to be having with you all the days of our life, that's such a foundation to our discipleship experience and our discipleship journey, I pray, Father, that as we dig into your word over these next few weeks to try to unpack this, this idea of prayer, I pray that we would be inspired to be People that come to a place of bended knee more than we ever have before. I pray, Father, that prayer would define us like it never has before. I, I pray, Father, that, that prayer would, would never be an obligation, but it would be a privilege that we can enter into all the days of our lives having a conversation with you, our creator. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said... Amen. So, so we're going to do, I'm going to get into this conversation about prayer. Re really, tonight is about setting up where we're going to be going for the next two weeks. For the next two weeks, we're going to unpack the Lord's Prayer. Many of you are familiar with that. Even if maybe you're not familiar with church, you probably have heard that, that saying before. You, you, you maybe could even recite some of it. It's such a, 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 a part of just the consciousness of our Western culture, this idea of the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. And then the words that, that he shared. You've probably seen it in a painting or a plaque somewhere before. We're going to really dig into unpacking the Lord's Prayer over the next couple of weeks. So, so today is about setting us up for where we're going to be going for the next couple of weeks. Let, let me read these few paragraphs for you just about the Holy Spirit. This comes off of Crosswalk.com, which is a, a, a great Christian website that has all kinds of resources. This was an article on there I found. It says, it often feels like we forget a member of the Trinity. We talk a lot about God. We focus a lot on Jesus. But we seem to ignore and neglect the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense as a spirit can be a lot more abstract and harder to get a hold of than Jesus as a man or, or than God as our creator. But the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, sometimes the Bible refers using either ones, is crucial to our Christian faith. Alistair Begg, who's a great theologian and, and writer and, and preacher, he, he wrote an article called The Five Truths About the Holy Spirit for Legionnaire.org, and he shares several convicting and helpful thoughts that will help us better understand this neglected member of the Trinity. I'm just going to share one of them, and you might find your way to crosswalk.com and read this whole article. Again, it's called The Five Truths About the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a unique person and not simply a power or an influence. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is a unique person. And not simply a power or an influence. He is powerful and he has an influence, but he has an identity. I remember thinking as a child that the Holy Spirit was more like a ghost than a real concrete being. But that kind of thinking can damage how we relate to the Spirit and interact with him. We have to understand that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is personal. Let me say that again. We have to understand that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is personal. So somebody say, my condition. My condition. Romans 8, 26a. We're going to just really dig, dig deep, peel back some of these layers of these verses. It could be that maybe you've read these verses so many times before. What, what happens when there's a verse like Romans 8, 28 that's so popular, we have a tendency to push 
too quickly past the ones that come in front of it, right? Because we're ready to get to the one that we're familiar with. And what happens is the truth that's in there gets missed. And then oftentimes it leads to a lack of understanding for this verse that's been popularized sometimes for the wrong reason, which I believe has happened to Romans 8.28. Romans 26a, I believe, talks to us about our human condition. It says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for example, we, do, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. The emphasis right here that Paul is speaking to is, is our situation, our condition in life, is that we find ourselves in situations and circumstances where we feel inadequate. We feel overwhelmed. We, we feel as though we, we, we do not have what we need to face the moment that we're in. I think about, as I was writing this sermon this week and not knowing that, that Denise was going to pass, I think about this is, this is the place where Wayne is stepping into. Right? Who, who wants to pick up their five or six-year-old son and have to sit down and have this conversation that your mother's gone to be with the Lord? Right? If there's ever a picture of, of a feeling of inadequacy, that's it right there. You've been in situations similar to that. Maybe the story looks differently, but you felt that feeling. You faced something that when you looked inside of yourself, you, you realized, I do not have what I need to face this moment. It could be in the face of what's happening in our nation, what's, what's begun in Charlottesville and now is, is, is springing up all throughout America. There's just the division that's, just, that's being exposed. It's always been there. Let's, let's not be naive. But, but now it's like the, the top is coming off and we're seeing the, the division that's taking place in our country. Let me just talk about that one just a little bit longer. This is out of John 3, 20. To, I love these verses, John 3, 20 to 21. Most of us think that John chapter 3 stops at verse 16, right? So that's the end of the chapter. Let's go on to the third one, right? Let's just. But there's some good truth coming after 16. Listen to 20 and 21. It says, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it. For fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. I don't know about you. I'm excited about what's happening in our country because stuff is getting pulled into the light, whether it wants to get seen or not. And we can't deal with it until we see it. But even as we look at what's happening in our nation, maybe even as leaders are faulting, such a powerful time of prayer here last night if you weren't here, and, and having the different areas of the altar to pray for different leaders in our nation and in our, in our, our city as we're called to pray for them, because I think part of this is their, their struggle, is that they're facing the weakness of their humanity, not knowing what to do in the face of something that's overwhelming. My condition, it's part of the human frailty. And Paul here in Romans 8.26, in this first part, it says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. So right, it's a double whammy. I, I get into the situation and the circumstance where it's beyond me. I, I look into myself and realize I don't, I don't have what it takes to step into this moment. Maybe there's times where we, right, we step into a moment, we have a sense of confidence that, that God's prepared me for this. I'm ready for this. Like when David went down to the battlefield to fight Goliath because he had defeated the, defeated the lion and the bear, right? He had a sense of readiness. And Goliath was just the beginning. So when he faced kings and kingdoms right, to conquer nations, he was ready because of there. So there are times when we feel ready, but then there's times where we feel overwhelmed. And then Paul says, and in our weakness, Weakness, when we feel overwhelmed, we, we feel an extra sense of weakness because now we, we, we don't even know what to pray for. So we feel inadequate 
And then we know the one that we need to turn to for answers is our creator, but then we even feel inadequate in how to talk to him. It creates a feeling of isolation and helplessness that can be overwhelming. It is my condition at times in life, and it's yours. And Paul's trying to help us to understand what we're supposed to do. I'm glad that this verse, verse 26, isn't just 26a, but there's 26b. There's a second part to this verse. Because in my condition, I find a companion. In my condition, I find a companion. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. I think that God, with great intention, brings us as often as we need it to be confronted by our condition because it's in that place that we have a revelation of the companion of the Holy Spirit like no other time. I love how it says that the Holy Spirit, when he's, he's interceding for us, it's, it's, it's with groanings. This, this word groanings is a powerful word. Listen to a, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, this same word is, is, is used here in Acts 7.34. It says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. Right. So this is in Acts, and a story is being told, looking back in history when the Israelites were enslaved, and they were enslaved for centuries. Right. And the Bible says that, 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 that God himself says, their groans have risen to heaven, and now he's ready to act. This same word here, talking about the groanings of a nation that was enslaved for centuries, it's the same exact word that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write and speaking of himself that when he goes to the Father on our behalf, it's that same moment. There's a groaning. There's an, there's an emotion that he brings to the moment. One of my favorite movies is the movie We Were Soldiers. If you've seen that, it was one of the movies that when my, both my sons turned 13, there were some movies that I wanted them to see that I felt that they were now old enough to maybe deal with some of the adult themes, and that's one of the movies that we watched together, each of them. And, and there's this powerful scene in this, this movie where the, 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 the battle that began the Vietnam War is taking place. And all the wives of, of the soldiers that are there on the battlefield, that they, they, they were living in base housing. And there's a taxi driver that pulls up to the commanding officer's wife's house, and he's got a, a yellow Western Union telegram. Now, she knew what this was because she had been around combat her whole life. She knew that the, the army was telling a wife that a husband had died. It's a powerful scene of how she doesn't want to answer the door, and, and, but when she finally gets out there, the taxi driver comes up and he's just asking for directions. If you've not seen this movie, you've got to watch it just for the scene that unfolds. And, 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 and so first she's angry, right, at this man, and, and this man doesn't know what to do, right, because he knows that what, what, now what he's done. He didn't realize that's what was going to happen, but he knows now what he's done. As he, and as he turns to walk away, this woman, her courage, she says, if there's more, you bring them to me. You, everyone you get, you bring them to my house, and I'll take them to the ladies. He comes back again and again. There's a few, then there's stacks that he begins to drop off. 
There's a, another courageous wife that, that goes with her, and they're walking arm in arm down the sidewalk, and, and they've got this stack of cards in their purse, and, and you know where it's going. They don't know if their husband's telegram is in the stack. And instead of sitting down and thumbing through all of them to find out maybe the news that's coming to them, they look at each other and say, we're just going to take them one at a time. Powerful. They look at each one, and they go to each house, and they cry with each wife, knowing full well it might be that those wives are going to be crying with them in just a few moments. You know just as well as I do that when they knocked on those doors to deliver the message that those husbands had perished in battle, they felt the emotion of that death as if it had been their own. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you and for me. That's what this groaning, this word groaning means. It means that when he comes to the Father and intercedes on our behalf, this word groaning means that he feels the emotion that we are feeling in our circumstance as if it belonged to him, as if it were his circumstance, as if it were his situation. That's the emotion that he brings to God on our behalf. That's our companion. It is as though it's his condition, even though it's not. This word intercede, it says, it's, it means to appeal. It, it, make, it means to make an appeal to someone on behalf of someone else. It's the Greek word, en tuchano, to intercede, to appeal. In this word, whenever you see the word intercede in your Bible, and, and depending on what translation you use, it might, not, it, might not use, it might not use intercede. New American Standard is a really specific translation, and you'll, you'll, you'll see it used there a lot. It's always this word. But here in Romans 26b, in the second part, it says the Holy Spirit prays for us. In, in the New American Standard, it says he intercedes for us, because that's the, that's the actual word that's used in the original language. And when you see this word intercede throughout the New Testament, it's, it's always this word, in, in tuchano. But, but, but what, what the, all the translations leave out, which frustrates me sometimes, which is why you've got to dig a little bit deeper, is that Paul here doesn't just use the word in tuchano. He puts in front of this word H-U-P-E-R. And it means to go above and beyond. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit doesn't just intercede for us. His intercession is above and beyond. And that's the nature of his being. He can't help but do it any other way. There's times where we intercede for others. There's times maybe we, we become an advocate for someone else. But you and I are never the advocate that he is because of the power of his divinity. His ability to feel our emotion. And he brings that emotion as if it were his own. And he comes to God interceding on our behalf. And the way that he intercedes, it causes God to look at himself, right? That's the mystery of the Trinity. And it's almost as like, hey, I, I get it, Holy Spirit. You, you don't have to try so hard, but he can't help it because that's the nature of who he is. You ever work with somebody like that? Always going above and beyond, right? 
One of my first jobs at, back in the call center industry before I crossed over into, into, into ministry, there was a girl that we worked with, Paula, sweetheart, but just right, always doing twice as much as she had to do. And it irritated us because it made the rest of us look so bad. Right? You just, so it, you know what kudzu is? Anybody know what kudzu is? Right? It's the, the viney plant that was brought over here to tame swamps and stuff like that. It's the vine that you see everywhere. And now it's a problem because there's, there's nothing that can contain it. Because once it's turned loose, right, it's just, it's everywhere. So that was, I called her kudzu. That was my name for her. Right? My, my affectionate term for, for, for Paula. That's the Holy Spirit. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. And he's doing it for you overachieving in his intercession. And in that moment, our companion, he feels the depth of our weakness as if it were himself. Luke 18, one through eight says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. And a widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. And the judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she was wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So do you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? I love this parable. Because this is what the Holy Spirit's doing for you and me. He's the person that just won't give up. And God is not an unjust judge. That's the power of this story. If a person that didn't even fear God or man would be willing to do what needed to be done because someone kept coming to them over and over and over, now you think about who God is, who always has our best interest at heart and there's no limit to his power, and now you've got an advocate coming to him over and over and over, overachieving in his intercession with such passion. I'm telling you, there's breakthrough that comes for us. I have a condition, but in that condition, I find a companion. But this companion, he gives me a chore. He gives me a job. He gives me something to do. 8.27 says this, And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's Word. Listen to the same verse in the New American Standards. It says, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, meaning that God knows our heart, he knows our situation, he knows our circumstance, so when the Holy Spirit comes to him, interceding on our behalf, he already knows what the Holy Spirit is going to say because he knows us. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is important because it teaches us something about God. The Holy Spirit is not notifying God about anything. He already knows. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us, isn't to bring something to God's attention. So why does he come with such passion? Why, is, why are we given this such powerful picture of the Holy Spirit above and beyond, interceding to God on our behalf with, with groanings, with these feelings, as if it were his, his situation and his circumstance? Why, why are we given this picture if God already knows? 
If God has the power to do something about it, what's the purpose of all of this to begin with? It's because the Holy Spirit is not there interceding to try to get God to do something for you. He's interceding because he's trying to get you to do something for yourself. The chore that you're given and the chore that I'm given when we're facing a situation and a circumstance that's beyond ourselves, the responsibility we have is to find God's will in the moment and commit ourselves to it. And you and I will never be able to do that without the power of the Holy Spirit working on our behalf. He's not interceding for breakthrough that God would do something. He's interceding for breakthrough because we have a condition. Because we're, we're, we're limited by our own humanity. Ours is the problem because our humanity sometimes it causes us to, because of biases, because of past experiences, because we've been taught wrong things by people that we trusted. Sometimes it's because our emotions are so intense, it, it clouds us. And, and, and we can't see what God wants from us. And the Holy Spirit is interceding for you in those moments so that there's a breakthrough, so that there's a revelation for what God is trying to do in us in that circumstance. He's not trying to talk God into something for us. The Holy Spirit is praying for us that we will see and follow the will of God in the midst of whatever crisis is causing us to feel weak and despairing, I have a condition. And in my condition, I find a companion who gives me a chore. And when I accept this chore, it breeds in me a confidence. Romans 8, 28, here it comes. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It's one of the most popularized verses in the Bible, and I'm guilty of misusing it, I would imagine, just like many of you have been. See, the context for understanding verse 28 is 26 through 27. You can't understand what 28's about until you dig into 26 and 27. 26 and 27 are in the Bible to set up this great declaration. But if you take 28 out by itself, if you take 28 out by itself, you end up with a really bad conclusion. See, I think we too often use verse 28 in this way, encouraging people that God is now going to do something in response to whatever circumstance we're facing to make it work out for our good. But that implies that God is reactionary in nature, but he's not reactionary because he's sovereign. There's nothing reactionary about God. He's always ahead of everything that's happening. This is about us working our way into trusting that God always has my best interest at heart. Not about God working my situation into different circumstances that will eventually benefit me. Let me read that again. This is not about us working our way. And this, this is about us working our way into trusting that God always has my best interest at heart. Not about God working my situation into different circumstances that will eventually benefit me. I have a condition. And that condition brings me to my companion who gives me a chore. And that chore breeds in me confidence that God has a plan, that he has a will, 
And whenever I find myself in a certain situation and a circumstance where I feel weak, where I feel inadequate, where, where I feel I don't have what it takes for this moment, there is supposed to be a confidence that begins to well up inside of me because I know that God doesn't feel inadequate. I know that he's not surprised. I know that he has a plan and that he knew all along this was going to happen. And even though I might be frustrated that I found my way into this situation and I feel incapable of finding my way out, I trust that God is there with me and that he's going to lead me forward and that his will is going to be done in spite of what my situation might say otherwise. Because I have a companion who's overachieving in his intercession to God with groanings and feelings of emotions as if that situation is his own and what he's praying for is me. What he's praying for is you. To be able to see with great clarity the purpose that God has for you. You ever spend some time in the book of Acts and read everything that Paul went through? Holy, what in the world? There's a list that he gives of all the ways that he suffered. I would have quit after the first half of verse one. You know why he didn't? Because he's writing this book. You know why he didn't? Because he had a hold of this teaching. Because it came from him. I mean, it came from the Holy Spirit, but it came through Paul. And what Paul's trying to teach us is the secret for how you deal when you're in situations like that yourself. There were times, right, where Paul was just, he knew in his humanity he did not have what it took. He, I don't even know if that's grammatically correct, but I'm just gonna move, where's Sabra, is she in here? All right. Thank you. How many times do you think Paul felt in his humanity? I don't, I don't have it. Oh, <laughs> But he knew in his condition he had a companion. And that companion was giving him a chore. And that chore would breed in him, in him confidence every single time. Every time Paul had such a confidence. God is going to work it out. He's going to work it out. You, you know why I made this note during the worship set. I don't know if it's going to be a sermon at some point or not. But you know, you know why we end up creating false doctrine? We create false doctrine in an effort to assimilate things that we know to be true that have an apparent contradiction. Because we don't like living with the mystery. That's how false doctrine gets created to the church. We have all these things that we believe to be true. But if I believe this, then something inside of me says, well, I can't believe this. And if I believe this, then I, I can't believe that. But all of these things are things that we believe to be true. So, so what we do is we create these false doctrines that seem to assimilate these other things that have an apparent contradiction because we just don't like living with the mystery. Paul was someone who was willing to live with the mystery. He looked at sometimes things that he believes. If, if you read through Romans, there's times you're like, I'm not even sure Paul knows himself what he believes. He's over here, he's over there, right? Because he's willing to live with the mystery. There were times where he didn't have the answer, but he didn't need the answer because he had a companion. And that companion gave him a chore. And that chore was to find the will of God in the moment and give yourself to it. And I'm telling you, when you can lock a hold of that, there is a confidence that, that breathes inside of you and begins to grow.
I have a condition where I find my companion who gives me a chore that breeds confidence that gives birth to a cry. Romans 15, 13, this verse. Stop it, so good. The Bible, right? Who knew? I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read again. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. When we were singing that last song in the worship set that Chris right, you would think that we've been working in a conference room for months to tie this all together thematically. He didn't have any idea what we were going to be preaching. I turned to, to Dave and I said, this guy, right, come on. He's got a camera in my office and I'm going to find it. That song, we're all about trusting on God. This is where we're landing tonight. So good. Because you trust in him, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something powerful that Paul's trying to give us here in the closing chapters of the book of Romans. It's, it's this idea of, in Christianity, you, you gotta figure out the causal relationships. If I wanna be here, what's gotta happen here to get me to get there? And Paul here is giving us one of the great insights of some causal relationships that take place between virtues, right? We have 24 virtues that we teach as part of our discipleship model. I know I've alluded to it multiple times. There's a website called letspraxis.com that you can go to. There's a, if you're visiting, there's a book back there that we'll give you for free to help you understand this journey that we want to invite you to go on with us. This is one of the most powerful causal relationships that you're ever going to find in Scripture. When I trust in God, Follow me. This is what it says right here. Let me restate it. This is 1513. When I trust in God, he fills my heart with joy and peace. Those virtues of joy and peace produce hope in me. And we all know why hope is so important for prayer. Let me say it again. When I trust in God, right? I trust in God. He fills my heart with joy and peace. We're not told why it works this way, but this verse tells us, this is how it works. I pray that the God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace, right? That God's gonna fill you with joy and peace because you trust in him. So when you trust in God, he fills your heart with joy and peace. Then you will overflow with a confident hope. I trust, he fills me, that trust leads to, right, to, to joy and peace, and then joy and peace produces in me a confident hope, causal relationship. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet. We understand the Bible in light of itself. You, you, you can begin to connect all of these verses together. And when you begin to connect verses together, cross-connecting them throughout the Bible, I'm telling you there's an, an explosion of truth that takes place in front of our eyes. See, Romans 15, 13, you connect that with Romans 8, 26 to 28, and you connect that to Hebrews 11, 1, and then we're, how we're gonna connect all of that to the Lord's Prayer next week. I'm telling you, it's powerful. It changes the way that you think about prayer. 
Romans 8, 26 to 28 is shouting at us, trust in God. Because that is the beginning of making us ready to learn how to pray. See, because at the end of the day, you know what the Holy Spirit is saying to us when he's up here? Interceding, he's interceding, he's interceding, groanings, passion, emotion. Every now and then he looks over his shoulder and says, come on up here with me. Come on up here with me. Come on up here with me. Because here I am in my condition. And in my condition, I need to find my companion. And he gives me a chore. And that chore is to find God's will. And it begins to breed in me a confidence. And that confidence builds a cry. And I come and stand before him. And I look up at the Father and say, I trust in you. That's my cry that I have to live with for the rest of my life. At some point, I have to stop looking at my circumstance and look to the Father, and my cry and my declaration has to be, I trust in you. Even when I can't understand, even when I feel overwhelmed, I trust in you. And the more that becomes your cry, the more he begins to fill you, right, with joy and peace. And the more he fills you with joy and peace, that that gives birth to a confident hope and faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. And then all of a sudden, our prayer life, it breaks out into a new place that it's never been before because there's a faith that we bring to our moments of prayer like we've never had. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. I have a condition. And in that condition, I find a companion, and that companion, he gives me a chore. And that chore breeds in me a confidence that gives birth to a cry, I trust in you. But for some of you, that cry of trust is not forthcoming. And what you need to dislodge what's keeping that cry of trust to come out of you, what you need is a confession. Confession begins to dislodge what stands in the way of the trust that needs to flow from your heart. I was praying about this moment in the service and I was thinking back to our, our, our message about Easter and, and how when Jesus comes out of the grave, you know, how we projected our own emotions onto him, which he was above all of that, but we wouldn't have been, right? How disappointed we would have been. We, we think about the things that Jesus did. He demonstrated effortless power and authority over every manner of disease, nature itself, raising people from the dead, right? I mean, you just, you go through the list. And, and yet, in, in three years of this, it's not like he did it for a day. Three years. And he tells them what's gonna happen in advance so they wouldn't be shocked or surprised. He comes up out of the grave, whoop, nobody. Scattered into the wind. Right, if that had been me, I would have said, all right, God, we gave it a try, I'm coming home, right? If that had been me, the Bible would, in the New Testament would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then it would be over. Because I would give up. Because I would look at all these people that I poured my life out for that now were utter failures in every sense. Why did I even try? Why did I even try? 
For some of you, that's why you're having a hard time trusting because people have let you down in your life over and over and over again. And some of those letdowns, they're big. Sometimes it was your husband. Sometimes it was your wife. Sometimes it was, it was spiritual leaders that you, you put your trust in and they betrayed that trust. And, and now there's, there's, there's something inside of you that doesn't want to trust again. And what I'm saying to you is until you learn to trust again, there is a part of your story that will never be written. It's like you're stuck in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Acts and everything else that came because Jesus trusted these people that were untrustworthy. Again, Christianity broke out and the world will never be the same again. For some of you, you're standing in a moment and your story is waiting to be, waiting to be written, but, but you've got to be willing to let your heart trust again. And the person that I'm asking you to trust isn't the people like Jesus had to trust, right? The person we're asking you to trust is the person who's completely trustworthy, who's perfect in all his ways, who has a plan and a purpose for all the days of your life. He makes it easy for us to trust in him. And for some of you tonight, as we sing this song, I'm telling you, there's a confession that you need to make. You need to own it. Even though other people have caused it, you've got to own your response to it. And you've got to say, God, forgive me for not trusting you because of the way other people have failed me. You gotta say it. You might find a place here at the altar. You might find a place where you are, but you gotta confess it. You gotta say, God, forgive me. Because I'm telling you, something will begin to break loose in your heart. That in your condition, you will find your companion who gives you a chore. That will breed in you a great confidence that gives birth to a cry. I trust in you. Let's stand together and worship.